Hello. 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 And thank you for tuning in again to this uh, podcast of mine, of Homer's. Uh, it's awfully nice of you too. Appreciate it. Uh, you know, do feel free to introduce yourselves in one way or the other if you'd like. Canberra is uh, sort of one of the few places in New South Wales that uh, is not on fire this week right now. The whole of, of New South Wales is pretty fucked. And, uh, and it's an interesting time to reflect on how how men in positions of power handle crises at this moment in history, you know? Yeah, you know, this is going to keep coming up on this podcast because it sort of feels like we're living through multiple unfolding, constant, never-ending crises. Uh, Whether that's true or not, whether that's historically unique, I mean, I doubt it, but it certainly does seem to be worse now than than it might have been at other moments in history. could just be a matter of perception, but that's my feeling. And, you know, a couple of episodes on this podcast, on uh, the Ode to a Resolution episode, I was talking about how in moments of crisis, people kind of, um, you know, they double down on their, on their masculinity, they double down on certainty of their belief systems, of their ideologies, of their attitudes, rather than opening themselves up uh, to admitting wrong, you know, and admitting confusion uh, and uncertainty. And the way that, uh, yeah, the Liberal Party leaders... And Labour 2, fucking Labour 2 left and right have responded to the bushfires is a really, it's a really clear example of that. You've got, I mean, the, the fucking most disingenuous bullshit line that gets peddled and has been peddled for the last, you know, 15 years is let's not politicize this issue. Whenever there's a, you know, a catastrophic climate change linked natural disaster, and that is just such goddamn garbage because the idea that a, a service, let's, let's say, for example, in this case, the rural fire service, right, that conducts backburning and that ensures the safety uh, and integrity of our natural environment in relation to our, you know, living in it. The idea that that is not an inherently political undertaking is ridiculous. Taxpayer dollars are taken from people's wages and allotted to that. That's a fundamentally political act. It's a show of collective priority through a governing body, which we consent to as political individuals. Political individuals as part of a political polity, a body of uh, the collective will. So when somebody says, you know, in, in, in a moment like this, when Australia is burning, let's not politicize this. What they're saying is, don't hold us to account. What they're saying is, don't look at this three-dimensionally. Let's look at this through the narrowest possible scope, the one which absolves us as your trusted holders of power and responsibility in society 
of making any significant changes to the way that society functions in relation to this particular issue. Stupid. And I just don't think it's any coincidence that, you know, 70 plus percent of the people making these decisions and parroting this rhetoric about not making things political, you know, are men. On the other hand, I don't love reducing things to gender, specifically gender. I mean, something that always seems to bother me about literature about gender is that it assumes that gender, be that, you know, you know, femininity, masculinity is some kind of, I mean, there's a contradiction in the literature. It says on the one hand that gender is socially constructed. On the other hand, it says gender is the cause of a whole bunch of things. Like, you know, for example, men's violence against women, uh, men's alcohol abuse, women's feelings about uh, their responsibilities to be mothers or providers of care. So this entire school of thought says that gender is at once constructed and is causal to other things. Now, that may be true. But it sort of seems like you want to find out first, before you say that it's causal of all of these other things, you want to find out first how it's socially constructed, through what means, through what institutions. If gender is socially constructed, why is it socially constructed? For what ends is it socially constructed? It's really interesting that you hear so little about sort of robust theoretical patriarchal frameworks these days, you know? Patriarchy was a theory of power. It was a grand reinterpretation of the way that societies function. And it pointed to this vested interest that men have as a group for retaining positions of authority, retaining capital, And as such, it was kind of a fucking mind-blowing theoretical framework. It it blows this thing wide open. It goes, this thing that you think of as natural and innate, it serves interests. It, It upholds power structures. And lo and behold, the people who make all these decisions are the ones who benefit from this power structure. And yet now, when you hear patriarchy, it's mostly in kind of a hashtag sense, you know, smash the patriarchy, destroy the patriarchy, fuck the patriarchy, which are all sentiments with which I absolutely wholeheartedly agree, but it's hardly a robust understanding of what patriarchy is and how it perpetuates itself inside institutions. It also should be said that patriarchy is hardly linked anywhere, it's not nearly linked enough to other structures of power like race and class. You know, if you want to talk about patriarchy, you're just kind of talking about gender and power. And that's a start. But what is power? What's meaningful about power? You know, do you get to keep money, property, other people's bodies? These are important aspects of power. And so obviously, the people who pioneered cutting-edge thinking about feminism and patriarchy were later subjected to a critique based on race and class, that they spoke for, you know, liberal middle-class white women's interests when they used the term patriarchy and feminism. And that's a fucking fair criticism. And, you know, then in the 80s and 90s, you get this sort of intersectional critique, 
of privilege. And that's really, really helpful. But it's, it's so rarely incorporated now into analysis of power. And, uh, and it's really, I find it really frustrating, actually, because I feel like it's very in vogue to talk about masculinity and power. But I often find that the people who are doing it have very little appreciation for, yeah, for theory, for sort of grand, significant structural understandings of not just gender, because they tend to be reasonably across that, but um, theories of class and of race. I have been playing guitar since I was, um, I think I started when I was about 15. I met this wonderful girl named Emily in high school, and she was an extraordinary guitarist and a very inspiring woman. And uh, there was a period in my late teens where I was, you know, I was writing a lot of music and I was even, I was performing in bars around Canberra. I was pretty bad, you know, I was one of those like self-indulgent young white guys who was just writing about, you know, Oh, my poor feelings, that kind of shit. And I've never really given it up, but I've also never really progressed. I stopped writing songs a while ago, but I still like to pick up my guitar and and kind of just now do this like formless jabbing away at my guitar. And I listen to a lot of podcasts where people just kind of have these nice musical interludes. So I've decided I'm going to start putting them in this podcast because I find that uh, I'm, I'm often like a bit of a, an interviewer without an interviewee. So I, I kind of change topics quite quickly in this podcast sometimes. And I don't want that to be jarring for you as a listener. So I'm going to start putting in these little musical segues and hopefully that'll soften the transition from one part to the next. I went to see a movie the other day. It's got an interesting little history, this movie. Uh, it's it's Martin Scorsese's new film, The Irishman. And, you know, if you're going to see this film and you haven't yet, then I'm just going to talk about it, like, f- just freewheeling here. So spoilers are going to occur, probably. I don't know which ones. Can't say in advance, but there will be some. So, you know. On the other hand, the subject matter of uh, The Irishman, while it is fictionalized is based on true events and real people. So, you know, if you know anything about the uh, the, the life and death of, of Jimmy Hoffa in the United States Union movement, then it won't come as a surprise, some of the stuff I'm going to say about the film. Yeah, so, so The Irishman is uh, sort of this fictionalized account of um, how and why Jimmy Hoffa went missing. 
So Jimmy Hoffa is maybe the most famous union leader in the history of the United States. He was also famously corrupt and actually went to prison for that corruption. And suddenly, mysteriously, in I think the very early 80s, he vanished. He just vanished and his body was never found, was never discovered. Uh, And so, of course, there are a whole bunch of sort of Elvis-style conspiracy theories about what happened to him. And this film presents what I would imagine is probably a a pretty realistic account of how exactly Jimmy Hoffa died and why Jimmy Hoffa died, or rather was killed. So, as with many other films by Scorsese, it's a film about the mob. It's a film about the Italian mafia in the United States. And Scorsese has made a lot of very famous films in this mold. The most famous of them being Casino and Goodfellas. And I would just say straight away that I find, I think both of those films are excellent. But I've long, in kind of the style of many men, I think, had a bit of a predilection for male-dominated, male-story-arc-driven mob movies. You know, like, I, as a young man, kind of felt like it was something I needed to get around to, was watching films like Scarface and The Godfather and Casino and Goodfellas and uh, Carlito's Way. You know, films that made the careers of, like, Ray Liotta and Joe Pesky, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino... And they're all very good movies. They're well-written and they're, they're thematically and cinematically rich as texts. There's a lot to think about. There's a lot that you feel watching those movies. They're morally complicated and complex texts. At the same time, you are pretty much always positioned in the explicit or implicit role of the protagonist of those films. You are tied to his fate. I mean, in films like Casino, Robert De Niro is not only the main character in the film, he's the narrator of the film. The same thing is true of Goodfellas. Ray Liotta is your central character and he narrates the whole thing. So you're listening to him tell this story and therefore you this effect comes over you where you're kind of like welcomed into this world, this way of thinking, uh, and this this group of men of which this character is a part, your part. This happens less explicitly in films like Scarface, but, you know, Scarface, Al Pacino, is still your guy in that film. It's, you know, he's the title character, it's a sort of a... <laughs> it's like... I mean, it's not a, it's not like a Bildungsroman, it's not a coming-of-age story, but it's his, it's his obscene and, and violent and incredible sort of rise to power that you follow, and that gives the film its momentum. And all of these films have become increasingly kind of, you know, critical of the way that they affect me over the years. But when I was watching them, and still when I watch them, I feel an affinity for the characters, and I do feel myself getting drawn into their in-jokes and their plights. You know, I, I, d- despite 
all common sense to the contrary, you know, that these are incredibly violent, self-interested men, I still find myself feeling like they're my friends, uh, like I'm one of them, and those who try to take from them or who stand in their way are kind of like, uh, kind of deserve what happens to them, which, in case you haven't watched many of these movies, is usually uh, an extremely violent death. And one of the interesting things about this these films is that is the way that they play with violence. Like, on the one hand, you can have a scene like one that occurs at the end of Casino, where Joe Pesky, who plays a an incredibly violent and pretty much psychopathic son of a bitch, finally gets his comeuppance in a really just horrendous and difficult to watch scene where he and his son are, are, are both murdered together. And a scene like that is very affecting because you've spent this whole film with Joe Pesky, and even though he's done horrible things to other characters throughout this movie, because he's one of your guys, despite it all, it's sad watching this scene in a way that it wasn't sad one and a half hours earlier in the film when Joe Pesky stabbed a guy to death with a, with a pen. You know, that was confronting, but it wasn't sad. And so it's weird how these films can all very well kind of insinuate you into uh, a world where violence is relativized, where violence by your guys against other guys is justified. Their violence against you is, like, tragic and has emotional repercussions. But it's only because they're your guys. There's nothing different, objectively speaking, about the violence itself. So, anyway, when I'm getting back to The Irishman. The Irishman is a really interesting study in doing this. It, it, it draws on a lot of the same norms of, of, of all of these movies, and it wouldn't surprise me to hear that Scorsese is very proud of what he's done with The Irishman, and I think he should be. It's a really remarkable film. Um, you should know before you sit down to watch it. It's... Three and a half hours long. And Scorsese has been public about this in the last few weeks, talking about how, you know, he couldn't get funding for this film. Uh, for like 15 years, he's been trying and no studio would finance it. Um, but Netflix just said, sure, fuck it, have the money. And so now you have this three and a half hour, I guess like, you know, gangster American history epic starring... Wow, starring everybody. The cast is just nuts. He's got actors who can run rings around the best of them appearing in, like, you know, a one-minute a one minute scene. Harvey Keitel gets to say maybe, like, 50 words, uh, but, but, you know, but he's still there. He still gets Harvey Keitel in to do this role. Anyway, so the film follows The Irishman, which is this fella, Frank Sheeran, played by Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro is a guy who just kind of by accident falls in with the mob. Uh, he was in second in the Second World War, uh, and they address the fact that sort of learning to kill in war has had an influence on the way that he views death. They don't plumb that deeply. But he gets involved with the mob, and he starts after one particular event painting houses for them. That's the euphemism they use. 
painting houses. The joke being, of course, that when you blow someone's brains out, their blood spatters all over the wall. You paint the house. And you follow this character, Frank, through up through his involvement with the mob, which is sort of principally through this character played by Joe Pesky, who it is just great to see back on the screen. That guy has such extraordinary presence. So he follows it follows his arc up through through the mob until finally when Jimmy Hoffa, with whom the mob are closely involved because they take out a lot of loans through the union that Hoffa ran. This is true history. When Hoffa needs some personal protection, they they give him Frank. Frank is offered over. Frank and Jimmy Hoffa become friends. And unfortunately, over time, rifts emerge between what Hoffa wants, which is control of his union, free of mob influence, and what the mob wants, which is control over the union. For the first half of this movie, you can kid yourself into thinking you're just watching something quite plot-driven. And for a while, I was I was afraid that that was what was going on. You know, if you watch something like The Wolf of Wall Street, he, Scorsese this is, handed over the entire kind of narratorial project to his main character, Jordan Belfort. And Jordan Belfort is a money-hungry sociopath who's usually high on coke. So this film becomes kind of an exercise in just chasing Jordan down his horrible rabbit hole until it inevitably crashes and burns around him. In The Irishman, Scorsese keeps much more of the control about what gets the emphasis. It's not Frank Sheeran's story, it's a story Frank Sheeran is telling you, but Scorsese is kind of holding more of the power and showing you what's important, taking you where there's rich ideas. And so really what The Irishman is about is kind of this corrupting influence that organizations have, self-interested, profit-oriented organizations have on the souls of people who become involved in them, who become beholden to them. There was an anthropologist, I think, I think it was David Graeber, I'm not, I'm not 100% sure off the top of my head though, who pointed out that the mafia is just an illegal corporation, but it operates exactly like a corporation. It has a strict hierarchical structure, it has series of incentives and checks on people in order to ensure that they align with its interests, and ultimately, it's trying to turn a profit for all of its shareholders. In the same way, although unions obviously are designed to represent the interests of a group of individuals, a union designed with a corporate structure at the top will become very similar in character. And when both of these organizations are populated with people who have egos, who have extraordinary discretionary power that is attached to their egos, you get these horrible instances of violence and retribution. In many ways, Frank, the main character of The Irishman, is kind of an everyman. And 
At first, that struck me as a little dull. I mean, like, he's, he's a violent man. He's a man who uses violence to advance his own interests and the interests of, uh, you know, people he's in cahoots with. Cahoots sounds way too light for what's actually going on there. You know, fucking mobsters. He uses violence for mobsters. And yet he seems quite, in, except in a few scenes, he seems quite mild-mannered most of the time. And I think they could have spent time showing that he was violent at home and that he was a violent person. But in many ways, what this movie is showing, or rather what this movie is choosing to focus on and make important, is how the violence of a corporation is against an individual's own conscience, an individual's own sense of what is right, and against their fundamental humanity. Frank ends up going along with these acts of violence, even finally against Jimmy Hoffa, played by Al Pacino, who at that point has become a very dear friend of his. Because to do otherwise would puncture the internal logics of these corporations, the corporation being the mob. There's a really interesting scene towards the end where these two FBI agents come to Frank and he's in this retirement home. His family don't speak to him anymore. You know, his children are afraid of him. His wife is long dead. But these, uh, you know, these two FBI agents, they come to him and they say, you know, so what, tell us, tell us what happened to Jimmy, you know, all those years ago. And he says, call my lawyer. They say, your lawyer's dead. Yeah, your lawyer's been dead for years. Frank, everyone's dead, you know, and they run through the list of names, all the people that he would keep the secret about Jimmy Hoffa's death for, they're all dead. So these FBI agents said, well, they're all dead, so why don't you just tell us? And, um, and he says, look, you, you guys seem like nice kids, but, uh, you know, I got nothing to say. And interpreting the choice to remain silent there is a really important thing to do, I think. I think it would be too simple to say that's like an honor code, you know, that he would know he broke his silence. If you're a made man, you just don't do that. Because this obviously, that's never really meant that much to Frank. What it is, I think, that keeps him from finally just saying, okay, yeah, I... I shot Jimmy Hoffer and I was told to do that by my immediate superior. And I know, you know, Tony Salerno above him told him to tell me to do it. So like, yeah, you can trace this back to the mob and up through the hierarchy, if you like. What keeps him from saying this is, is that it would mean contradicting the logic by which this particular corporation not only functions, but has run his entire life. And that obviously doesn't matter at that point to the corporation itself. What it would mean, though, is for Frank to admit to himself that he handed all this shit over, his his happiness, you know, his love of others, his love for his family, his relationships with his family, a robust and meaningful emotional connection with himself and with others, he handed all this over for a set of logics that when you look at it, don't stand up 
to scrutiny were just invented by a group of men and died with that group of men, the last of whom is him. And that would be such a such a tragic thing to have to admit to yourself that rather than do it, he he dies alone, never having told anyone his story. And it's really important, I think, that those kinds of stories do get told. That you do get to see that at the end of it all, these logics aren't worth shit. You know, they don't have an inherent value. In fact, they're extractive. They're, they're deleterious. They, they make us worse. They make us lesser. And they can seem so powerful and so natural. But you have to point out that they're not. You have to point out that they're artificial. So that you can then just say no. You can opt out. Because it doesn't make sense. And it's not right. Another really interesting thing about The Irishman, and, and this is true actually of most sort of classic mob films, I would say, is that it kind of makes a dark humour out of uh, men's really petty egoism and shitty reactive violence. Like, there's a long history of this, you know, that there's... There's a weird little cutscene in The Departed, actually, which is a great example, where Ray Winston and Jack Nicholson, who are sort of, you know, Mr. Big Dick and his right-hand man of the mob, the Irish mob in, Bro in Boston in this movie, are executing two people on a beach. And Jack Nicholson shoots one and then shoots the other. And the woman, when she falls, she's on her knees, they're both on their knees. And when she falls, she falls sort of sideways onto her, her her now dead husband. And then the camera kind of shoots up from the perspective of the bodies looking at Ray Winston and Jack Nicholson standing next to each other. And Jack Nicholson laughs. And he points at her and he says to Ray, look at that, she felt funny. And Ray says to Jack, you know, Francis, you really should get therapy. No, you really should see somebody. In fact, The Departed is full of examples. Ray Winston intervenes after Leonardo DiCaprio has, like, beat some guy. I think he glasses him and then he hits him a few times. Ray Winston intervenes, tears them apart, and says, you know, that's not quite a guy you can't hit, but that's almost a guy you can't hit. Why are you hitting him, etc.? 
Then when he's sort of dusted him up and he's told Leo to keep his fists to himself, he turns around and he hits the guy himself that Leo was hitting. And in these little moments, violence becomes kind of like, almost like pithy, witty repartee that these characters undertake. You know, I guess I touched on this earlier, like, like there's there's a way that violence is often treated in these films, and, and not just violence, but like misogyny and sexism, even casual racism sometimes, is just kind of like laughed off because it's like, it's forgivable in the hands of, oh, our, our, our Ray Winston character, who's kind of fundamentally likable, you know? Oh, and he did it kind of like as a punchline to a joke. And because we had no emotional connection to that character, we see the humor in the situation, the darkness of it. The fundamental darkness of the situation is is kind of glossed for a comedic effect. And it's really interesting, over the years, watching heaps of mob movies, that has never failed to kind of get me on side, that cinematic technique. I do find myself laughing along in moments when I can feel the director wants me to laugh, to think of the violence as kind of almost slapstick in style. When in actual life, if I ever witnessed anything like that, I would be horrified. And The Irishman does this really well. I mean, it's sort of, there's this great petty rivalry that evolves throughout the movie between Jimmy Hoffa, played by Al Pacino, and Tony Pro, who's the head of another union. These two men, he's played by Stephen Graham, by the way, who I just, he's a phenomenal actor. Stephen Graham playing Al, um, playing Al Capone in Boardwalk Empire is one of the most incredible performances. And Boardwalk Empire, incidentally, I would say, is a good example of a show that takes violence seriously and doesn't use violence for comedic effect. It shows the consequences of violence. But yeah, so there's this evolving rivalry between, you know, Jimmy Hoffa and Tony Pro throughout this movie. And these men are incredibly politically powerful individuals. Uh, they're, they're, they're not only wealthy, they're heads of like some of the biggest unions in the United States, responsible for millions of people's jobs and livelihoods. And when they try to have some diplomatic conversation, it inevitably devolves into petty name-calling, and them slapping and punching and brawling on the floor, which when you're watching the movie is kind of funny. But then you think about the fragility of these men's masculinities, the fragility of their sense of their own power and stability, and that they are so unable to countenance someone not doing what they want. It's, It's terrifying. And almost certainly completely realistic as well. I mean, I certainly don't think that, like, I I feel like some people look at situations like this where you've got, like, you know, the the sort of two heads of these big American unions kind of, like, beating the crap out of each other on a cafeteria floor because they can't get along because they just don't like each other or because they feel threatened by each other, whatever. Look at that situation and think, okay, well, that's why you need, you know, better human resources personnel. Or that's why you need a woman in that role. And I'm always a bit frustrated by solutions like that. Like, that that's not the answer. What leads men to behave that way? Also, I would say, gender is not the answer in and of itself. There's something about 
power and what that what that hinges on in a capitalist society that I would say runs deeper and is the deeper motivation for behavior like that. A society that is fundamentally non-egalitarian and encourages you, teaches you explicitly that in order to get by in that society, you have to carve out a space for yourself, assert your interests over the interests of others, be dominant in order to get by, be dominant as a morally approved undertaking, that men would then get to a point that anyone would then get to a point like that and just behave like a fucking asshole kind of follows to me, you know? So you might be able to, like, moderate that by bringing in more women and more human resources personnel and putting in better policies. Sure, but something at the root of that is still poisoned. I don't know, I feel like I am aggravating all the time now in my mind, at the very least, for, uh, you know, for fucking socialist revolution, seizing the means of production, radically democratic redistribution of resources and power sort of seems to me now almost like the only way we'll make meaningful change in society, which is not an especially achievable or realistic model let alone a scalable model for social change, you know, let alone all the questions that come after what you've done to smash the state, then you need something else to put in its place. And that's a, that's a whole thing. Anyway, I'm a big fan of Martin Scorsese's films, you know, the more that I reflect on them. Casino and Goodfellas are great. I think Gangs of New York is excellent. Wolf of Wall Street is great. Shutter Island is great. The Departed is excellent. But, yeah, I really think Scorsese's done something special with The Irishman. If any of you see The Irishman, which I would recommend you do, please let me know what you think. I would love to hear it. Um, you can email me at editor.homer at gmail.com or you can also tweet at me at that Thompson, that T-H-O-M-S-O-N, no P. One, one, one last thing I want to mention before I wrap this podcast up is that, uh, I, I mentioned a few episodes ago that we've changed our publishing format on Homer, uh, which is, you know, primarily with this, this podcast, but the, it's, Homer is primarily an online magazine discussing masculinities and, and challenging what it means to be a man. And we recently changed our publishing format so that now we'll be publishing much less. Um, but we're going to publish sort of strictly long form pieces. So pieces that really sort of pick apart a particular issue and in, in kind of a really substantial way. And we just published our first piece in that vein. Uh, and you can read it now on the website. And it's a really, really good piece. If I do say so myself, I worked with the author on it. Uh, for the last month. Her name is Ruth McHugh Dillon, and the name of the piece is The Machismo Misconception. And in this essay, in this piece, The Machismo Misconception, Ruth kind of unpacks the way that we often fixate on particular men, and that distracts us from systems of power. 
And she runs through all these tremendous examples. She wrote her PhD on kind of machismo in the Dominican Republic. So she gives you this beautiful portrait of uh, the most famous dictator they've had in modern history, which is Rafael Trujillo. And all of the ridiculous shit that he used to do really like if you know if you if you're inclined to use the term toxic masculinity then you know if you could fucking stamp that shit on his head and she goes from him to like a portrait of trump and the way that we write about trump and think about trump and how we get trapped in his like disgusting little fucking orbit uh and then skips over to australia and and links that into the way that we talked about and thought about tony abbott when he was our prime minister and before and after as well. And also how in order to kind of quell our, uh, our, our, our rage, some politicians choose to style themselves as daggy dads instead. And, you know, her examples here are, um, you know, Tony Abbott, when he was trying to diffuse tension And right now, our current prime minister, Scott Morrison, um, and how he, he kind of, he sort of puts on daggy clothes and talks about his, his mortgage and, you know, how he wants a good future for the kids, all this kind of bullshit that's designed to make you think of him as like humane and ordinary and relatable. When, if you just look for like one second at his rasp of policies, they're, intensely inhumane, exclusionary, and radically kind of divisive. And in both of these cases, Ruth is really, really astutely and eloquently drawing attention to the way that fixation on either of these models, whether we're in the hands of an overt authoritarian son of a bitch, or this kind of like, daggy dad, I'm your mate, let's have a beer. The policies and the power structures don't change. And in order to actually have a meaningful understanding of power, let alone to meaningfully resist it, we have to look beyond individual personalities. So anyway, that's kind of a broad strokes picture of Ruth's piece, but I would really strongly recommend reading it. If you go to homeronline.com, it's the first thing you'll see on the page, The Machismo Misconception by Ruth McHugh Dillon. I strongly recommend it. Okay, that is me for this week. Um, Thank you very much for tuning in. I have actually really enjoyed making this one. I wasn't, I wasn't sure if I was going to make a podcast today because I was feeling a bit out of it, but I'm really, I'm really glad that I did. And maybe you are too. Uh, if you are <laughs> on the off, on the off chance that you are, uh, please subscribe to this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts and, um, and leave us a review if you wouldn't mind. We would really greatly appreciate that. I would very much appreciate that. Um, cool. Thanks very much for listening and, um, I'll talk to you again soon. 